Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at EudaimoniaPod. In this episode, titled The Prospects for Philosophical Literary Criticism, I speak with the founding editor of The Point magazine, John Baskin, about Iris Murdoch, Stanley Cavell, Robert Pippin, and the fiction of David Foster Wallace. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. Uh, This morning, I am joined by John Baskin. John is an instructor and associate director for the MA program in creative publishing and critical journalism at the New School for Social Research. He is also a founding editor of The Point magazine, a thrice yearly magazine of philosophical essays and criticism. His first book, Ordinary Unhappiness, The Therapeutic Fiction of David Foster Wallace, was published by Stanford Press in August 2019, and that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you for having me, John. Yeah, well, I'm I'm really, really excited. I love your book so much. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like you're a kindred spirit in a lot of ways. <laughs> to me. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. But before we talk about your book, I just want to invite you actually to talk briefly about The Point magazine. So you're one of the founding editors of The Point. I actually discovered The Point, I think it was 2016, Mm -hmm. um, because there was this essay that somebody sent to me called Add Your Own Egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. uh, Add Your Own Egg by Nakul Krishna, Nicole, Philosophy yeah. as a Humanistic Discipline. I loved this essay, and that's when I started reading The Point. Uh, well, that that's a great essay, actually, I feel like, to start with and thinking about sort of um, what the point, what the impetus was behind The Point, because it really was a piece by uh, someone who was studying philosophy in England and sort of trying to think through the relationship between the moral philosophy he was studying and the kind of social milieu and life he was living uh, while he was there and how it related to his upbringing and all these things that were sort of really central to the way he thought of his life. And I think um, the way the point began was really, I was uh, in this program called Social Thought at the University of Chicago, which for people that don't know is sort of a a sort of PhD kind of great books type program. But one thing that's uh, sort of really unusual about it, especially for a graduate program, is you read books very directly. You know, you, you read primary sources, you don't read very much secondary criticism, and you're really encouraged to think about how the books relate to your own life, to the politics and culture of your time in a, in a, in a fairly unmediated way uh, for academia. And mm-hmm. so that was something that was really powerful to all three of us. I started the magazine with two other colleagues in the program during my second year. And, you know, we love the way this program allowed us to think about our lives uh, through books and through our classroom discussions. But we still felt that when we went to sort of write about the books um, and the classes, we were forced into more of a kind of academic system. We were still essentially writing academic essays. 
And as we looked around us at the kind of uh, forms in which this kind of thought that we really came to value about uh, ideas in the world was were being practiced, you had kind of academic journals on the one hand, which took ideas very seriously, but often at a kind of distance uh, from mm -hmm. life, so to speak. Yeah, um, oh, for and, sure. And then you had the kind of uh, highbrow uh, literary magazines like Harper's or The New Yorker or The Atlantic, which we liked and, and privileged good writing in a way that we enjoyed, but which we often, often felt did not take ideas fully seriously. There'd be a kind of intellectual tourism, for instance, in a New Yorker article uh, where you kind of are given a tour. Here's some interesting ideas. Here's what some academics are thinking. But what was missing from both, we felt like, was a kind of um, recognition of the seriousness of thinking through these ideas for our own lives. And I would say the point was sort of an attempt to uh, create a forum where, where people could do that. Yeah, so, so who are the other founding editors? So the other founding editors were Johnny Thacker, who now uh, teaches philosophy at Swarthmore, and Itai Zwick, who ended up leaving, uh, leaving academia. And, and they're both still involved, Johnny a little bit more than Itai, but they're both still involved. And in the meantime, we've picked up, you know, the magazine has really grown around 2016 when you mentioned reading uh, your first article was when we brought on Anastasia Berg, who I know you know. Uh, and um, she had also been a social thought student and now teaches philosophy. And she and Rachel Wiseman, who's our managing editor, came on around 2014, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, the two of them really have, yeah, been instrumental, I think, also in sort of keeping the magazine fresh and, and, uh, and evolving. Yeah, it's a great magazine. I, I really love it. And then there's also a book that just came out at the University of Chicago Press. I think it was like the reopening of the American <laughs> mind. Is that right? Re reopening the American mind was the name of yeah. our op-ed, actually. The book is called oh, okay. uh, The Opening of the American Mind, 10 Years of the Point, a right. suit suitably modest uh, title. Um, but well, it's a riff on Alan Bloom, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So explain that. Are you, is that a book that you, I don't know that the magazine somehow considers a, a touchstone or were you just being funny? <laughs> so, uh, I, we weren't just me. A lot of people didn't find it funny. Um, no, the, um, so the, 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 the magazine was not started with Alan Bloom in mind, but when we went to do this sort of book about 10 years of the magazine, and we were thinking back over sort of the relation of intellectual life or the evolution of intellectual life over the last 10 years, he was someone we thought of because we think that there is something in his book, uh, which in, in the closing of the American mind, which was this massive bestseller in the late eighties and became this whole kind of culture war, um, football, uh, culture war that's we're still very much in as we found out when we published the op-ed but um mm -hmm. you know he what we found of value in bloom was a kind of seriousness and a confidence in the importance of humanistic study and of its and of its importance for a democratic society uh that that we really liked and and a kind of you know he he also believed in this model of reading books very directly um, in relation and thinking about ideas very directly in relation to our own lives. And this was a confidence that we sometimes think people in the humanities today who talk about like training people for job skills or try to make the humanities into like, try to get it respect as a science or these kind of things often don't have. 
uh, or who turned it into just a kind of instrumentalized form of political activism, that these are all ways uh, that we've sort of devolved from the confidence that Bloom had that the humanities could speak very, you know, were, the, were really in a way the capstone of a democratic society and did not need to justify themselves on any other kinds of grounds. On the other hand, we also found things we really disagreed with in Bloom that we think the magazine has sort of responded to in a sort of, uh, uh, by expressing a different view of intellectual life. Bloom did have a strand of elitism that ran in his vision of sort of the four years at an elite college as like the great one, the only time in one's life that one could, that one could, uh, engage in this kind of humanistic reflection. He talked a lot, you know, and, and, and he also had, had a certain kind of uh, limitation in terms of what books he felt belonged in the great conversation. Um, and I think that we hope that the magazine has sort of taken his seriousness about the humanities, but extended it in a much more capacious way to sort of be accessible uh, both to the intellectual traditions that were left out of Bloom's uh, vision of sort of the, you know, of the great books and also, but also even more so that we talked about in the op-ed, parts of society, like the idea that uh, humanistic education and reflection on the sort of ideas that guide our lives and values should not just happen on academic campuses, but can be something we engage in throughout our lives, whether through a magazine like The Point, but also in all kinds of things we suggested, you know, in the in the op-ed, you know, continuing education courses, book groups, um, you know, that humanistic education ought to be thought of as something that runs throughout throughout our lives and is sort of part of what a good life is in a democratic society. I love all of that. And that's actually the most thoughtful thing I've ever heard anyone say about that book. I mean, I read that book. When did I read that book? At some point in undergrad. So, so at some point in the late 90s. And I think my, my, I think my older brother told me to read it. He was, he was at a Jesuit school. Anyway, I, I loved the book. And then when I told people I loved the book, I was given like the stink face. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what's wrong? You know, what did I do wrong? And they're like, that's conservative. And I was like, okay, but is it wrong? I mean, <laughs> right. You know, and, but the thing is, and this was like, you know, unfortunately, a lot of my experience as an undergrad, I mean, that was the end of the conversation. It's conservative. Yeah. As if that were an argument or even an engagement. And, and I was like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, what's conservative about it? I mean, he's talking about how relativism is bad. Are you, are we all relativists now? Like, right. like that seems wrong. And, and anyway, a lot of it, like, it just really resonated with me because I was really struggling to find a place for myself. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. I thought I wanted to, to study English literature, but I really didn't. Well, I, I found my English literature classes very ideological <laughs> and not actually like that interested in the text we were reading. Mm -hmm. And anyway, I became a philosophy major because that was not appealing to me at all. But I just sort of like, I, I saw what he was saying, you know, yeah. like I could see the obvious problem. Well, and you were, you were inspired by it, which I think is something like worth like, uh, attending to like the idea that this was an inspirational, like notion of how important intellectual life was and philosophy and ideas. And I think 
I'm sensitive to the idea that it's not his vision is not the one that speaks to everyone. Not everyone will be inspired by that vision. There are other things that may inspire other people. But I think there is something we always I think at the point, I think something people connect with sometimes at the magazine is the idea that we're sort of very respectful of this idea of what inspires you intellectually is important, what, you know, and um, not something to be just sort of thrown aside or, or categorized, you know, and I think that's, a, that's an important thing about that sort of confidence that he brought to what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I really appreciate about the point is that it doesn't really seem ideologically coded in one way or another, you know, it's like you, I mean, there are just so many different yeah. <laughs> voices that point and, you know, some of, some of them pretty surprising. I mean, I think recently you, you had a, a had a monk writing about celibacy and you don't, that's not something that you typically see. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, when we started the magazine, we really didn't, we didn't think of it in ideological terms. We thought of it as a sort of, I don't know, a philosophical project, I guess, in terms of what kind of audience we were trying to create and what kind of model. At the time, I really didn't know very much about the history of literary magazines. And I've sort of since learned that this is actually quite rare. Most literary magazines are started with a kind of political project in mind. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, and so we, we sort of thought, could we have a philosophical dialogue in this magazine? And the idea at the time was not really ideological, even in a, even in a contrarian way. We weren't trying to push back against anything, uh, politically speaking. We were trying to push back against a certain kind of thought that we didn't see happening or to provide a space for a certain kind of thought we didn't see happening. But what's interesting, and we thought a lot about this looking back at the 10 years, you know, that are covered in the, in the book is, just how much society around us has changed in those 10 years. You know, we started mm -hmm. right as Obama was being um, elected. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, within the time around 2016, although it started a little bit before that, actually, I would say, we started to get a lot of pushback on the fact that we didn't have an ideological line, that we did provide space, like you said, for like a Catholic monk to write about his vision of celibacy, often next to like someone who had very leftist or liberal views. And, and we thought that was sort of, you know, I think initially that wasn't something that made us suspect. I don't know, people enjoyed or connected with that, but partly as the magazine got more popular and then also as the world changed around us, that became almost seen as like a really kind of like uh, unusual and rebellious thing to do to provide this space and to not sort of demarcate ideologically what our, what our, um, range of things we were going to publish were going to be. So I think it's become something that's really, I think people pick up on as distinctive in the magazine, although it was not sort of like the initial, it grew out of the initial conception of the magazine rather than being sort of the primary aim, if that makes sense. It does. I think it's great. And, you know, for our listeners, you should obviously check out the point. Okay. I want, I, I want to talk about your book. There's so much here. Okay, so the book is Ordinary Unhappiness, the Therapeutic Fiction of David Foster Wallace. I want to start with, I mean, I think we're mostly going to talk about chapter one, which is titled Narrative Morality on Philosophically Therapeutic Criticism. So I, I guess I'll just start with this opening quote which I like and, and got a good Twitter response. So, so it must be interesting. Yes. <laughs> Early in my academic career, I began to probe the intersection between literature and philosophy. I was motivated by something like the following thought. The best literature is not just literary. It involves ideas. And the best philosophy 
is not just logical, it employs literary tropes and often a creative use of language or rhetoric. As a critic or scholar, I thought I could help show how reading philosophy as literature and literature as philosophy would illuminate the meanings of both. And beneath this thought lay another, that when properly understood, the greatest literature and the most convincing philosophy were part of a complementary intellectual and ethical project. So, so that's sort of like, just like a jumping off point for the discussion, but you go on in this chapter, which is mostly focused on three philosophers, Iris Murdoch, Robert Pippin, who is the chair or the director of social thought at the University of Chicago and Stanley Cavell. You know, what, and, and I take it that part of your main thesis, like the reason why you're grouping these three different thinkers together is that they all in different ways converge upon the idea that reading literature, you know, is important and, and valuable for philosophy, especially for moral political philosophy, precisely because it is truth revealing in some sense. Like there's something there to see that's true and important and that helps us better understand ourselves. So brings us to a kind of self-knowledge. Does that seem like a fair? Yes, yes. Yeah, so let's, I don't know, let's let's try to unpack that a little bit. You know, why, what, how does each of them, you know, come to this view and why should we think that's true? Well, so, I mean, one, one thing to just say at the outset, I mean, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because you, you're going to know probably more about what the sort of philosophical common sense is, you know, from the philosopher's side. <laughs> but it's not only that they think literature brings a kind of self-knowledge, it's also that they think literature brings a kind of self-knowledge that is unavailable to philosophy in its sort of conventional way of doing things. Um, right. mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, th there is a tradition, for instance, of philosophers who, uh, you know, will take a, a literary, an example out of a book and say, you know, a work of fiction and say, here, this demonstrates my philosophical theory. And isn't it nice to have an example of it, you know, in this book? Yeah. I think that's <laughs> the prevailing thought. It drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it drives me absolutely crazy. That's one way of using literature and philosophy. And, you know, I mean, I don't, it's fine. Like, but it, but it's not, it's certainly not a way of like engaging in the, in the deep sense with the literary sensibility or with what literature is in itself. And, um, I think that Cavell, Murdoch and, uh, Pippin all think of literature it, it, contrasting to that model. They go to literature, not for examples of a philosophical theory that they've sort of worked out already independently yes yeah but as a kind of uh for for a sort of insight into a form of thinking or 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 a, or a access to a form of thinking that they feel is yes truth revealing but in a way that philosophy is not um you know that that conventional philosophy is not sort of well positioned to deliver so you know uh murdoch the example i give in the book uh is from the sovereignty of the good. And she talks about the way, I mean, she lays it out very clearly, you know, I mean, people in philosophy, are, you're very familiar with this, I'm sure this argument, but the idea that in moral philosophy, there had tended to be in sort of modern moral philosophy, this um, focus on rules, on how do we come up abstractly with the right kind of rules to guide our moral behavior. And she wanted to point out that most moral behavior really isn't like that. I don't think does this behavior uh, accord with this rule or not. 
most moral behavior takes a much more subtle form, which actually can be seen much better when we put it in a narrative, um, when we think about it over time. And she gives the famous example of the mother-in-law who initially dislikes uh, the woman that her son has, has married and, um, you know, finds her vulgar or crass or something. And over time, though, because she sort of holds herself to a standard of treating this daughter-in-law with some respect, she comes to see her over time in a different way and comes to see her, I think Murdoch uses the terms lovingly or generously. Mm -hmm. And, but that this is, and that we want to be able to describe this as a moral development, but it is not a development that can be well described just by uh, putting it uh, in a rule form. And it actually in some ways can only be seen if we put it in, the na in a narrative in the form of a story. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that Murdoch is very committed to this idea that, you know, really at the heart of being a good person is having the proper vision, right? So you actually see the world in a certain way and you see certain things as salient, more salient than others. And you know, and this is really key, and I think she's picking this up from Simone Weil, you know where to direct your attention, <laughs> right? And you can't do that. That doesn't happen at least not solely by having the right principles, but a formation mm -hmm. of, you know, really the whole person, but certainly a, a, a proper formation of appetites, right? But again, you don't come to have the proper formation of your appetites just by accepting principles, right? Or, right. or conforming yourself to, to a rule. That's this not how that happens. Not to jump ahead, but this is, I mean, this thing about attention is a huge thing for Wallace, you know, and he writes about it in the sort of like hyper attention economy uh, context of contemporary America in the 90s when, uh, you know, there is, there are so many demands on our attention, so many ways in which our attention can be channeled, you know, shallowly or toward uh, things that are destructive or self-destructive. And that's very much, I think, at the heart of his fiction is this notion of sort of how do we train our attention in what Murdoch would call a moral direction, I think. I think, that's right. yeah, Wallace sort of tries to stay away from more from uh, explicitly moral language, at least in his earlier fiction, but it's mm -hmm. definitely there in the background. So he talks about it more in therapeutic language in terms of sort of what's healthy for me or what allows, you know, me to be happier or have good relationships, but it's all there in the background, the moral philosophy, I think. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I find just super interesting about Murdoch, I mean, I'm, I'm truly fascinated <laughs> by her both as a person and, and as a philosopher, but you know, she's, she's, she just has a very contemplative vision mm -hmm. of, of, of human life really. And, you know, because, because she thinks that like human, and which seems correct, you know, humans are like these needy, selfish, inward regarding protective creatures and constantly hurting themselves and others, <laughs> you know, like really the only way to break out of this is to pay attention to what is not you, right? Pay attention to the world. And this, you know, this for her is central. And she's also, you know, I mean, she's a very robust realist. She thinks that when you pay attention to reality, right, to, to, the, to the way things really are, when you, which she thinks is hard, mm 
Yeah. You know, she talks a lot about the veil of perception and how we can pierce it. And, and, you know, part of it too, is she thinks we're just very self-deceived and it takes so much effort (laughs) to know ourselves and the world. And, but there's no possible moral progress without it. And I think for her, where literature enters into this picture and art, I would say art more broadly, but literature more specifically is that, you know, it does have, at least in the case of good art, right? It does channel our attention to what is, you know, to use the old fashioned language, which she's happy to use the true, the good, and the beautiful, Mm -hmm. um, which she thinks really will transform you know, if, if we give it the attention that it deserves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and she was a novelist too, which I think is, is, is relevant to how she thought about. She wrote 26 novels. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Murdochian strand seems, you know, different in in a bunch of important ways from say like Pippin Mm -hmm. So what, so let's talk about Pippin. Yeah. Um, are you, are you a Pippin student? I was, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. He was, he yeah. was the advisor on my dissertation and I, I took, um, many of his Hegel classes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we just, we would, we would say, are we going to the Hegel class now? Like we, you mix up Pippin and Hegel sometimes when you were in social thought, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what Pippin's view is. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it is, it is, it is useful to, to sort of, um, separate him from, from Murdoch and also from Cavell. I try to, I try to say that, you know, they have some things in common, but they also all have very distinctive ways of thinking about this. I guess what they all have in common, I think, is this idea that literature challenges the customary ways of thinking of philosophers about the moral life in particular. But, um, but yeah, so for Pippin, and mostly I'm going off his book on Henry James, Henry James and the Modern Moral Life. Pippin basically feels that one of the most salient facts about moral life in modernity, which we still live in and, you know, uh, beginning whenever you want to begin it, but, but uh, in modernity, sort of, as we move away from sort of top-down views of morality, it's not the church or the state or whatever who determines, or the philosophers even, who determine a set of rules by which we act. Morality instead for him in the modern, in modern life, for him, everything is historical. That's part of the Hegelian, um, you know, uh, inheritance, but it emerges out of sort of our mutual interactions with one another. It actually emerges in our social life and through our attempts to sort of mutually recognize one another as full human beings. And that this is a kind of constant task of modern social life, a moral task that's kind of wrapped up in every social interaction we have. And I think that he, so he sees in, in James's books, he, he makes a claim that, that novelists therefore are sort of the real moral philosophers in this period, because they are the ones who are able to sort of make explicit to us the ways in which these everyday intimate interactions with other people or social engagements, how morality, how our morality emerges out of those. Um, they're the ones that sort of are able to document that and express it and therefore make it available to us to see, which is a very kind of the Hegelian concept. We become conscious of it and therefore are not just subject to it, but can kind of think about it in a more, um, in a more, you know, from the point of view of agents. Yeah. So when, you know, so in a Hegelian register, self-knowledge 
you know, we think of self-knowledge as like first personal, but there's also, you know, there's like we, Mm -hmm. there's not just I, but there's we. So is he looking for the, that kind of self-consciousness, you know, sort of like what we. Well, right. So one of the things that one has to become conscious of to be a morally in modernity, and that can be hard to become conscious of because there's a kind of, um, uh, modernity is also modern, modern society is also a place where we really valorize independence and autonomy, you know, that the Kantian, like the self as autonomous. And I think that one of the things Pippin thinks, uh, sort of social life ought to teach us is about interdependence and about the degree to which, uh, we are dependent on one another, both sort of intimately interpersonally and also on larger social institutions, that there's this kind of Hegelian reciprocal dialogue between us and these social institutions. But again, he feels that we live in a period where that is something that, you know, you, you can certainly say, I can say that to you, you know, we have a reciprocal relationship between ourselves and institutions and you can kind of get it. But I think he thinks the place where it's really, where we really see it, where we're able to make it, uh, uh, explicit to ourselves is in literature. And, and that's where, you know, in someone like Henry James or Proust, I mean, he talks a lot about remembrance of things past where you see this kind of, uh, social world where, uh, you know, the, the social hierarchies are constantly crumbling and being rebuilt. Information is moving around very fast. There's no stable sense of meaning, but that doesn't mean there's no meaning. And that's the point. Like he wants us to see, it's not just, there's a certain strand of philosophy where it's like, well, if you can't have the rules, then it's just nihilism or skepticism, you know? And I think he wants us to see it through novels that there's, there's a form of behavior that is actually our form of behavior most of the time that is between those two things, between certainty and utter skepticism or nihilism, there's actually a kind of a kind of building up of norms that may not be permanent or transhistorical, but that nonetheless have a claim on us uh, in the midst of our of our social lives. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I like all of that. I mean, I think there's an emphasis in Pippin, at least as you describe him in your book, for thinking that. Well, one, that, you know, as human beings, we're like always, our self-consciousness is always like historically Mm -hmm. bound and it changes. So like, I don't have the same kind of self-conscious life as, you know, a medieval. Right. (laughs) And, and so part of it is that he's thinking, I mean, like if I'm a reader of Henry James, right, then I'm not necessarily coming to better understand myself directly because I'm no longer, I mean, is, is the historical difference too great now? Well, that's a good question. And I mean, I, I remember talking, I mean, I think that to some extent, Pippin believes we do still inhabit the world of Henry James, that that is not, that we are not uh, as far from his world as we are from the medieval world, that this is, that this is, uh, you know, certain things that he describes about our social world are still true in the sense of sort of um, uh, the kinds of ways that norms are created in our interpersonal relations. However, I think I make the point somewhere in the book, one of the things that if you, if you go to Wallace and think about the social world that he's writing about, which is closer to ours, one yeah. of the things that's really interesting is it's just way more self-conscious, like explicitly self-conscious and that people have learned to talk about 
the norms of their society and the norms of their own, what they're aware of, you know, everyone knows the lingo, like everyone knows how to talk about feminism and critical theory and all these theories of society and theories of psychoanalysis that get, so that then becomes part of their self-consciousness in a way that it certainly isn't in Henry James. There's still a kind of, um, I don't know, innocence, I guess, or naivete or, or just, you know, th th these people have not been sort of, I mean, we'll get to this later, but like one of the, one of the points I think Wallace wants to make is that we have all of us become philosophers in a certain sense in our social lives in, in our time. And that this is in the sense that we have all learned to sort of, um, uh, self-diagnose, self-analyze, um, in this way that then becomes part of the fabric of our social interactions. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see sort of the beginnings of that in James and Proust, but I think Pippin would, you know, that that's one thing that I think has, has altered, uh, and that you see very different in, um, in the, in the social world that Wallace is writing about than in Pippin. But so, I, I mean, to answer your question, I think there are, Pippin would say there are continuities, but of course there are also important differences that we have to, that we have to think about. I mean, I just wonder if on his view at some point, the world is so different that we're no longer really learning anything about ourselves. So, I mean, for example, like when I teach the Iliad mm -hmm. in a philosophy class, you know, is that just, does that just have nothing to do with us anymore? Right? <laughs> because we're just so, I mean, it obviously is a very alien text and some, you know, it's, it's kind of like, wow, this is really intense, but I sort of, I mean, I'm inclined, you know, to the more old fashioned idea that there's still something in Homer, mm -hmm. right. About ourselves. He's still writing about the human. Yeah. And, and I think that, I think on some very, very, very general level, um, there are features of the human that are pretty stable, yeah. <laughs> you know, and of course they're historically realized in all these different ways and, and they get, uh, they, they get deformed in all kinds of interesting ways, y you know, depending on, I don't know, like the material production of things. And I mean, well, obviously we see pr profound, but I, but I think for example, you can still learn something about human grief and rage from Homer. Yeah. Well, this, so two things. I mean, first of all, that last thing you said, just as a teaser, that's what you're supposed to do on podcasts, right? That we should come back <laughs> to, to grief and rage because this is actually a way, thinking about those things is actually a way in which I came to doubt my initial confidence in the thing that you read at the beginning about whether mm -hmm. philosophy and literature are really engaged in a complementary project, uh, sort mm -hmm. of all the way down at least. But I mean, I don't think Pippin would deny that there are features of human, of, of human life you can learn about in Homer. Uh, but I guess, I guess the question for you is how you feel about Hegel, because that's, I mean, the, the, the model that Pippin is sort of, I think, building on is, this, is, is you know, the Hegelian idea that, yes, um, there are aspects of human, of our own history that are still in us from all periods of history to some degree, but there are sort of different issues that become more salient in different periods of history, and that uh, the sort of desire to be, well, 
I, I don't know. I, it's so hard to try to summarize. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I would say he does have a sort of Hegelian view of, of the historicization of, of self-consciousness, which I don't think commits you to thinking there's nothing to be learned from the Greeks or whatever. But there mm-hmm. is always this kind of attempt to think about what has to be learned historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, me and Hegel, I'm not a Hegelian. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think... I find Hegel very interesting and, and I'm happy to concede any number of things to a Hegelian, but no, I'm, I am to the surprise of no one, not a Hegelian. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I'm, I don't, well, I, I don't think I'm a Hegelian either, although I'm not a hundred percent sure, but yeah. <laughs> Hard to tell. Yeah. Okay. So let's just for the sake of time. Okay. So let's, let's go to Cavell now. Yeah. What is Cavell adding or so Cavell, Cavell, I would say, probably comes closest to what I sort of the frame that I use most dominantly in the book, which is this notion of the therapeutic value of uh, philosophy in literature or thinking in literature, thinking in a literary way. And, you know, I talk, you know, if you think of Hegel as sort of the guiding influence on, on Pippin, Freud is a very important influence on Cavell and the way he thinks about what we get out of literature. Um, but and, also Wittgenstein. Yeah, right? so, so Wittgenstein, I've got sort of behind all of it. And obviously, he's also a, a very important influence on Cavell and, and particularly his notion that philosophy is not just one method, but this set of different therapies, um, which is uh, was actually the title of my dissertation, Different Therapies, um, you know. And yeah, so I mean, Cavell, you know, he has that famous quote in The Claim of Reason about philosophy having banished literature and can and how some of the future of philosophy will depend on whether philosophy can recognize itself again in the literary. Uh, and I think that that's, it's hard to talk about Cavell because he's sort of the most thorn, uh, naughty in terms of how he, how you sort of explain a lot of it comes out in reading his readings of literature, which are incredible. I think among philosophers, he's really um, unusual and sort of how, how, able he is to sort of both write about literature in a literary way itself and sort of see into the way literature works and makes us think. Um, But yeah, I guess in the broadest terms, he sees literature, uh, the best literature as a sort of way of, and the best philosophical criticism of literature of sort of helping us come to consciousness about aspects of our own social and personal experience uh, that we are apt to deny or, uh, keep at a distance from ourselves. Um, and so there's a sort of therapeutic, it can be helpful to think of in literary criticism. There's a sort of, you know, the hermeneutics of suspicion is turned toward the text. You think about what the text is hiding in the Cavellian idea of the hermeneutics of suspicion. The suspect is you, the reader. And we think about what we're hiding from ourselves in the way we read the book and what the book can kind of help us uncover about ourselves if we read it, you know, in the right kind of way or in the way that the philosophical critic can help us do. So I don't know, that might've been a little confusing, but (laughs) maybe. maybe Well, no, I mean, you say, I'm just looking at your book now. Literary criticism is often perceived as a process of looking under the surface of the text, but therapeutic criticism in both Cavell and Pippin's hands is concerned with what has kept us from seeing what is right on the text surface. It seeks to expose not something hidden in the work of art, but something we've hidden from ourselves. 
This is why one may not only be surprised by its critical discoveries, but also ashamed by them. And then you say, well, don't confuse this with the command to identify with characters. This is actually the opposite of that. That it's, I, I think what you're trying to say is that it's like trying to understand the whole, um, the, trying to under, like in, in the literary work, like trying to understand the whole culture that could produce these characters and this narrative. Is right. that, yeah. So you and say, and, and Cavell and Pippin's essays on literature, the artwork does not then model a way of dealing with ethical challenges. Still less does it offer universalizable ethical guidelines or contain propositional knowledge. Rather, the artwork itself constitutes an ethical and philosophical challenge. The critic's role is to help the reader face this. I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, so it's something like Cavell takes as sort of a starting point that a work of art has power over us. He's interested in works of art that are, you know, that he that he feels are powerful and and say something to us. So you take something like and one of the one of the one of the interpretations I deal with is Samuel Beckett's Endgame, and you have these four people, you know, two people chattering on the you know on this weird boat. It seems like this sort of apocalyptic thing and. Uh, they seem, in, on one hand, very unfamiliar to us, uh, very strange, science fiction almost. And yet what Cavell wants us to see is actually uh, how familiar these people are. So that's why I say it's the opposite. It's like, it's not that he wants us to identify them. It's like he wants us to see what keeps us from just seeing that the people in this play are a family and they're bickering like any family. And this is actually how we sound if we can kind of get out of our own way and see, you know, and so... It's like he takes it as an initial point of data that the work has a kind of power over us, but that we don't always, we're not always clear with ourselves about what that power is. And part of the work of therapeutic criticism is to bring us to see, you know, what this work is showing us. Because, and this is the Freudian part, there are all kinds of ways in which we will default to explaining the work of art in a way that doesn't really challenge us or that sort of confirms our pre-existing belief about who we are and how we act. And so the therapeutic critic is to bring out what's actually right there in front of us, if only we could see it, you know, in the sort of like, the, the, that's this sort of Freudian idea, like you, you, but, but we hide it from ourselves. It's not that it's hidden in the text, it's that we hide it from ourselves. And we hide it from ourselves partly for, it could be for personal reasons, but it's impossible to separate those from cultural habits, you know, from our habits of mind that have been formed by uh, how we've been taught to read, how we've been taught to think about ourselves. Um, but he does think that artworks have the potential to sort of cut below that, but then but then it's the, it's the job of the critic to help us see how they've done that. Yeah, so, I mean, I, so many questions I have. The first one is, like, where is author's intent in all of this? Just doesn't matter. Uh, I don't know that it doesn't matter. I mean, I think you could work backwards and say that, uh, from what Cavell's saying and, and say that the author has, has seen something and made evident something that many others in the culture have not seen. And this is part of the power of what they've produced, you know? So now whether we, what we end up seeing is exactly what the author intended. So one thing that's one distinction that's helpful is I think, um, for Cavell, 
it wasn't necessarily crucial to know what the author intended, but it was very important to understand that an artwork is something that is intended. You know, it's not a passive, so it's an act of communication. It, it is an attempt to communicate something. And there is, um, and, and, and an author may communicate more than they know, if that makes sense, you know? In fact, in most great works of art, I think part of the problem with intention is that it's sort of too impoverished of a concept to convey what gets communicated, you know? As in, as, with, as in our own lives, sometimes we communicate with the way we say something, with the, with the tone of voice we use, with the style of interaction, more than we know, more than we know that we're saying, you know, and that may be picked up on by the person we're, we're talking to. And that doesn't mean that we communicate, you know, whatever our, our class position or something, although we may, that may be something we also communicate, but it also can mean we just communicate, um, yeah, just things that we hadn't consciously intended to communicate. So I think that Cabell is, is sort of trying to say that the work of the critic is to find what's most salient to this audience in this communication. And that may not have a one-to-one -one relationship with what the author thought of in their mind while they were writing this thing, but it's not completely dissociable from the fact that they were, they were engaging in an act of communication. Yeah. So I'm wondering how I apply this view. So I, so I am just for personal reasons, you know, very interested in Catholic literature mm -hmm. and well, I just might say Christian literature more broadly and the, you know, the Catholic novelist or the Christian novelist is bringing certain commitments, mm -hmm. right? You know, Dostoevsky's bringing certain commitments. Marilyn Robinson's bringing certain commitments. Flannery O'Connor is bringing some very definite commitments, you know, about sin and grace and redemption and things like this. And so I'm wondering how, and those commitments are theological, but they think that they're very true. You know, I mean, they think it's, we are sinners. There is grace. We need to be redeemed, you know, like, and I'm wondering how the philosophical criticism approaches someone like Dostoevsky. Like, how would Pippin approach someone like Dostoevsky? Is he gonna? Is, is does he necessarily have to abstract away from his commitments in that to just look at the historical, just to see, you know, what, what it reveals about historical consciousness in this time, or, or is it just like? Does it just fall out of it that these people just can't really be that interesting <laughs> to the I, philosophical literary critic? Well, let me ask you this. Why do you think those people write novels? I mean, I mean, why, why do they feel that they should express these commitments in a, in a literary form specifically? Well, I don't think there's any one answer to that question. You know, I mean, I can say in the case of Flannery O'Connor, you know, she thought that the that the point of writing fiction was to trans transmit a vision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and this was very important for her. Now she has a Catholic vision, and I and and I I always wonder. So I I, I talk a lot about Flannery O'Connor, and lately I've been writing a lot about her, and it's always interesting to me when I hear someone say, and of course I think everyone should be able to appreciate Flannery O'Connor. She's an excellent writer. And I think she has, I think she does have an important vision, 
But, um, you know, I hear people say things like, well, she really writes about epiphanies. And I'm like, she writes about grace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what she writes about. Yeah. That's what she says she writes about. And if you know anything about, for example, her main source, Thomas Aquinas on grace, this, I mean, like this makes a deep sense of the action of these stories and the images that she's drawing on, which are all very biblical. You know, we, we like, if, like, if you don't know the Bible and you don't know anything about grace and you read Flannery O'Connor, I think you can get stuff out of it, but you're going to miss a lot. Yeah. Right. And the same thing goes for, I mean, I think if you don't know the Bible, most of Western literature is going to go dark. <laughs> like you're just not going to understand uh, a lot of what's going on. Cause that, I mean, because that's one of the primary sources right. of imagery and metaphor and just whatever. But I, but I, but I guess I'm just wondering about, because I wonder a lot about the relationship between philosophy and theology. Yeah. Um, if I think about philosophical literary criticism, you know, I'm just wondering how we apply that to art that is clearly coming from a, a place of faith, mm -hmm. right? Which is a lot of art. Yeah. Well, it's actually funny. We have an article in the next issue of The Point about Marilyn Robinson that actually makes this point about the people who say they like her fiction, but not her essays. You know, they tend to be this sort of idea that you can detach the fiction somehow from the, from the Christian ideas that clearly yeah. inform it. Um, and that that's a, not a good way to read her. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I so, look forward to reading that. Yeah. It's interesting. It's about the new novel and her views on race. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's really, really, I mean, I'm really excited about it, but um, the, uh, to the broader question about how they would think of religious art. Yeah. I think it's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess one thing I would want to say is just like I was saying before, regardless of what, uh, Flannery O'Connor may want to get across about sin or grace. I do think she's part of what makes her a great artist and probably makes separates her from a lot of didactic, more didactic Christian artists is that she does communicate more than she knows. Like I was saying, like there's, there is so much in her writing that speaks to, it may be incomprehensible without knowing something about those things, but there also is much that goes beyond that in her writing about normal human interactions and, um, you know, just, you know, about life. But I think, I don't know, one, one way I think of this, I've written a lot about Terrence Malick, um, who is, as is increasingly evident from his more recent movies, very much a Christian artist yes, and filmmaker. And I am not Christian. I grew up Jewish and largely without religion. Um, I've come to study and be very interested in religion as, you know, as an adult, but there's still some part of it that feels inaccessible to me and that I cannot fully participate in. Um, and yet I find Malik's films, including his very Christian ones, to be incredibly powerful. And I've thought a lot about um, why that is and how I can think about that as a critic and as a critic who follows to some degree this path of the philosophically therapeutic critic. And I suppose one of the things, um, so like one of the ways I've handled that with his movies is that I think one of the things they make me feel are the limitations of my way of life, for lack of a better word. The thing that religion provides that is not provided in my way of life. And, uh, and, and the way religion allows you to see the world, that a secular worldview 
largely excludes you from, um, or at least feels that way to me, or that secularism has not figured out how to find a substitute for those things. I mean, it tries in various ways. But um, so I think like one one way in which I would think of that as a therapeutic way of reading his films is like, I look at it and I, I can see those Christian themes in the vision. And I agree with you, it's important to know something about those, although I think they're quite evident, like in the films. Yeah. Um, and what I, but, but what I see then, but I'm still ultimately turning it back on. So someone might be inclined to say of Malick's movies, well, someone who likes them, an easy way to, to you might be inclined to sort of uh, explain away the contradiction between the fact that you're not a Christian and you're like, yet you really like this Christian film and to say, well, the Christian parts aren't really that important, or he's really just interested in spirituality, not religion, not religion. And, you know, you might be inclined to abstract away those things so that the movie fits into your frame of thinking. But I would say a properly philosophical critic makes you face up to the fact that no, this is like quite an uncompromisingly Christian vision and it poses a challenge. And that's right there on the surface. Like I was saying, it's not something you have to like look under the movie, you know, under the, to the subtext of the movie to get, it's right there. And it poses yeah. a real challenge to us as secular readers. And so I think, and I would say the same thing about Robinson and, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor to some extent, although I haven't written on Flannery O'Connor, but I think I would want to think about those same things. So you're not sort of, you know, you're taking your situation as a reader and as someone who has been culturally formed by a secularist habits of mind and really thinking about why it is that this other thing has power over you and being on trying to be honest about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really helpful and interesting. And I think for me, you know, you, you talk about Murdoch in the beginning, but you, you don't really at the end sort of like come back around, you know, it kind of ends with Cabell and then you go into the Foster Wallace, which makes sense. This isn't a criticism, but in just trying to think through your view, yeah. like it seems to me that Murdoch is a really interest is, is there's a lot in her work as opposed to Cabell. I really don't know Pippin's stuff. I need to read it and I'm inspired to read it now, but I think there's more space. There's more conceptual space in the Murdoch for a secular analog for grace mm -hmm. for, I mean, she, she just, she talks about grace mm -hmm. and of course she clearly doesn't mean you know, divine love <laughs> you, but she thinks like, you know, this isn't just like a wacky thing. Like there's something that's true about it. And she also has this mystical, yeah. you know, I mean, there's this real mystical strand and she talks about prayer, Whoa. but she's an atheist. She's a very committed atheist. She does not. And, and she's struggling with the question of, you know, how do we, how do we understand these aspects of human life yeah. without God, you know, there used to be a narrative about this. It made sense, but she can't believe it. You know, she herself cannot believe that it's true, but she sees that these are features of human life. Yeah. Right. And so I think you see in here in her, like a real, a real attempt to try to make sense of this that I find really interesting. Do you, you know. do you, do you feel that in Wittgenstein also? Are you, I mean, like, like where, well, like in the investigations or. I, I don't know. I guess, I guess 
one, I guess I would say one of the ways I try to, I, I do see like some aspect of what Murdoch is trying to point out in Wittgenstein in the sense that there is an attempt to say the discussion about rules and logic that we are so used to in philosophy and not just in philosophy, but especially, you know, is, and, and this sort of secularist attempt to uh, um, ensure to demystify and to ensure yeah. certain forms of meaning for ourselves is bound to fail. Like he, yeah. he show, and he shows the limitations of it in all kinds of ways. And, and he, yeah. he too has this notion of the mystical, you know, the, at the end of, you know, of what we cannot speak, we must be silent. He thinks Throw the ladder away. Yeah. There's sure. almost a kind of blasphemy <laughs> to trying to talk about these spiritual elements, mm -hmm. you know, and yet in many ways, he's a very, secular philosopher in some sense, or he doesn't depend on religious concepts, at least, to sort of uh, do what he's doing. But I but I somehow feel that um, religious, um, I feel that the religious sensibility is in his work. Uh, mm -hmm. Similarly yeah. to, in a way, I feel that it's in Murdoch's, even though she may have been an atheist, you know, the, mm -hmm. the attempt to come to terms with these parts of human life um, that don't There's fail. some very religious atheists. Yes. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm friends with a lot of them. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I just, I guess I was just, I, yeah. So that, so all of that's helpful. I think, I mean, I, we're not going to solve this. No, <laughs> I'm sort oh, of like, what, yeah. Don't sell us short, Jeff. <laughs> but I, I feel like I, one of the things that I just appreciate so deeply about Murdoch so she's very attuned, you know, to, to this aspect of human reality yeah. in a way that I feel is very honest and important. And she's, she's also very honest, you know, that she just doesn't think religion has a future. She just doesn't think we can believe this anymore. I take a different view from her about that, obviously, but, you know, she's still, you know, she, she's, I just, I just find her a very careful, capacious thinker. Yeah. And, and I just wondered if, I mean, really, I guess my question is, and then I definitely want to move on to David Foster Wallace is, do you think like, do you think there's space for this kind of thing? I mean, it sounds like the answer is yes, you do. But do you think there's space for this kind of thing in, in the more Cavell inspired view of philosophical literary criticism? Well, I think that, so it's a good question. You know, Cavell later in his, I talk about in the book later in his career gets into this idea of perfectionism, which I think the tradition of sort of philosophical perfectionism, mm -hmm. I think is sort of in some way, the closest he comes to, to trying to offer a sort of like positive secular, uh, tradition of aspiration, I guess. Is that uh, like his stuff on Walden? What, yeah, what yeah, 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 okay. Walden, but also he finds it in Hollywood uh, films. Uh, uh -huh. This sort of idea of a, of a certain kind of secular perfectionism that we can find in marriage uh, through certain kinds of relationships. But I don't know. I mean, I would say no. I mean, I don't think I don't think he exactly has room for the kind for exactly the kind of thing you're bringing up in Murdoch. But I think Wittgenstein might uh, yeah. and Wallace might actually. But mm -hmm. I do think that Cavell, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I would say Cavell probably doesn't fully, although I think he was influenced by people like Murdoch and Anscombe, uh, is not totally um, 
doesn't write as much about those aspects of, of human experience, I would say. Right. Right. But, but his style of criticism isn't necessarily opposed to it. No, I no, get that I he doesn't go no. there. No. Okay, good. Okay, good. Okay, so I want to I want to move on to David Foster Wallace. So David Foster Wallace actually studied philosophy at Harvard, correct? Uh, that was one place he studied. Yeah, he studied, I think, for a year. He actually went to a class of Cavell's and then said he couldn't understand anything that was going on and left. But... Um, <laughs> But, uh, said there were like, Maybe he did understand. Yeah, he something. said that there were a bunch of sycophants, you know, and he couldn't stand it, so he left. Uh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, but he studied Wittgen. I mean, he was like a logic person as an undergraduate, and then he had a kind of. Uh, so he. I think. Yeah, didn't he write like a thesis on like possible world semantics? Yes. Or something? Yes. So Hilarious. he was like heavy analytic yeah. philosophy up until yeah. he was about twenty-one, and then he had like a midlife crisis. Tragically, it was actually the middle of his life, but uh, he yeah. had a kind of midlife crisis at twenty-one uh, and decided this stuff was was not going to do it for him, and he started writing fiction. And it partly, I think, coalesced around his time of reading Wittgenstein, which is you know a sort of uh, uh, coincidental thing, maybe, but uh, mm -hmm. I think relevant, perhaps, for, for what direction mm -hmm. he went in as a fiction writer. Okay, so so like on your thesis, he's he's very influenced by Wittgenstein and Wittgenstein's idea of philosophical therapy. Yeah, I mean, that, that I guess is what I would say was sort of like the what I was adding. I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to point out like Wallace was influenced by Wittgenstein. He Some of his books mentioned him directly. He talks about him in interviews, but I wanted to draw a comparison between a sort of methodological comparison that I hadn't seen really fleshed out in the writing on Wallace, which had to do with, yeah, his sort of whole view of Wittgenstein's view of philosophy and what it could do and how Wallace imported that in a way into, into fiction. Well, let's just talk briefly about what you think therapeutic fiction is, and what it does. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, Wittgenstein had this idea that philosophy was not, again, going back to this, was not like uh, working out a set of uh, theories, but was actually more like a kind of therapy where one came to recognize, he liked to use the term, the picture by which we're hold, held captive, you know, where you came to realize, so that the, a lot of the time philosophers would be working for a long time on a problem as if they were going to reach the truth of it. And Wittgenstein, as if it was all about finding the correct theory for it. And Wittgenstein wanted to say, no, you're, you're held captive by a certain picture of what truth is in this context. And you need to sort of understand the, the, the picture and then you'll be free from this problem and you'll achieve what he called peace, you know? Um, so, so that, so there was this sort of therapeutic benefit to it. And I think that Walt, but he, but he himself in the investigations starts to move toward a much more narrative form of doing this. He recognizes that through a kind of dialogue of different voices, you can bring about this kind of uh, peace or liberation from the, from the dynamics of theory or, or of the picture you're held captive by in philosophy. And I guess my, my, my idea is just that Wallace does something quite similar in his fiction. Um, he takes readers who he assumes have certain kinds of habits of thought and certain ways of, yeah, certain ways of thinking about their lives. And these ways have led them into a kind of despair that he diagnoses among many of his contemporaries, a kind of a term he liked to use was lostness, uh, that, he, that he diagnosed a kind of lostness among his generation in the 90s or even 80s, um, living in this kind of consumerist uh, 
end of history landscape of, 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 you know, end of, end of, end of century America. And that he, um, wanted his fiction, I think to, and, and chief important to what he saw was that many of the ways in which these people were trying to solve their problems, whether it was sort of traditional therapy or high culture, uh, postmodern theory and art, all these kinds of television entertainment were all, um, still in some way tied up with the philosophical frame that was causing the despair in the first place. And so the fiction was in some way an attempt and the stories through these were, were sort of examples as Wittgenstein would have called them that allows the reader to, to sort of make explicit to themselves what the frames of their own thinking are, what the habits of mind really are and what actually constitutes a challenge to those ways of thinking, which is where we get into the AA sections and infinite jest, which is sort of, the, the great concrete example in Wallace's fiction, but which is something that never would have occurred to the kind of, you know, educated, uh, supposedly sophisticated people who would read uh, Wallace novels. Mm -hmm. Well, so what, I mean, we're not going to be able to talk in detail about Infinite Jest, but what is the, if the model is that it's trying to break the grip Oh, or if his, if his fiction is supposed to expose something that we're in the grip of and help us break free of it, what is it in Infinite Jest that he thinks, what's the picture that we're in the grip of, right? Yeah, so the, I mean, the picture has many elements, and I don't know that I can say all of them, but I'd say one of the, from a philosophical perspective, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is the idea that it, the picture that we're in a grip of is one that conflates all uh, serious thinking with one form of thinking, which Wallace traces back to Descartes, a kind of Cartesian style, uh, rationalism um, and, and introspection and self-analysis, a sort of form of reasoning about ourselves that Wallace thinks has its place. It's not always like a terrible thing, but has become a kind of addiction, has, become, has a kind of structure of addiction. No matter what our problem is, we think that more analysis will help us solve it. Um, and he calls this, you know, he compares Hal and Infinite Jest to Hamlet, the idea of analysis paralysis. Um, and, um, you know, the book opens with, with, a, um, with, a, with a tennis academy where there are the, all these kind of elite students who uh, are, I think, kind of exemplars of this form of thinking, that sophisticated thinking is this very analytical, often conflated with philosophy, though it's not the whole of philosophy, but kind of way of thinking. And to the extent that they think there are treatments for it, they're, they're caught up in this sort of postmodern irony and skepticism, which they think is going to maybe help them, but is really just a kind of index of their despair and of not having access to sort of other ways of conceiving of, of their lives. And so then the second part of the book takes place in this AA uh, the recovery center down the down the hill from the tennis academy and i think that that's in the aa portions of infinite jest is really where wallace you know in a funny way is his most wittgensteinian there's a very um there's there's an attempt to say this thing aa which from our sort of rationalist perspective looks kind of silly or overly simplistic or naive or based on religious faith uh, which can't be, you know, verified or dogmatic, that we have all these ways of dismissing what AA, what happens in a 12-step program. And yet it works for a lot of people. And uh, he sort of suggests in the novel 
um, first gently and then more and more insistently that this is not only something that, that what happens in AA, though, and, and, and that AA is not based on a rejection of thinking, but it's actually a different kind and form of thinking that has different criteria for what makes thinking efficacious uh, than the sort of postmodern theory dynamic that the, that the students at the, at the tennis academy are in. And that this is something that is that is, has something to offer, not only for addicts of drugs and alcohol, but also addicts, uh, those of us who are addicted to this form of thinking and to this sort of postmodern irony and despair and skepticism. Yeah, so we, uh, one thing that we were going to talk about was his critique of irony. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't just a novelist. David Foster Wallace is an essayist, and his essays are amazing. And one essay that we were wanting to talk about was E. Unibus Plurum, Television and U.S. Fiction, which was published in 1990. Mm -hmm. So, so... And, and it's very dated in some ways, and it's very timely in others. It's dated in the sense that it's really a reflection on 70s, 80s television. Yeah. <laughs> and which I'm certainly old enough to remember quite vividly, 80s television. I don't know about you, John. but <laughs> Almost, almost. You know, that, yeah. I definitely grew up in a six-hour-a-day context, as did my husband. So... So yeah, so but it's but it's so dated now because people don't people I don't think people watch six hours of TV anymore, do they? I mean, or at least our experience of it is, is television is so different now. Yeah, that it's you know it's it's very dated. But he he talks a lot about irony and the dangers of irony, which seems apropos of what you were just saying. So I wondered if we could just talk about like what his diagnosis is yeah well i mean i there's a quote in that piece where he talks about like irony is great for emergency use you know it's something you should take out like a fire extinguisher sometimes when you need to you know deflate something that's become too dogmatic or too you know uh encompassing or overly earnest but that in his time irony had become the sort of air everyone breathed at least in a certain well he talks about how it had spread initially Irony was like this tool of the sort of avant-garde, you know, John Barth, the metafictionist, these sort of writers who were seen as doing something really advanced. But by the late 80s and early 90s, it's become so common that you find this sort of self-conscious irony on the David Letterman show, on uh, Pepsi commercials. It's become, there's nothing advanced or destabilizing or undermining about it. It's not undermining capitalism. It's not, it's become perfectly... Uh, incorporated into all these aspects of our culture and yeah i think he thinks he's, he's sort of trying to point out in the essay yeah that it's become uh incapacitating in certain ways it doesn't really go anywhere irony you know it's uh yeah it, it doesn't it's not a way of life well he's i mean he says you know it's a source of great despair yeah and so he thinks you know it's I mean, he clearly thinks it's bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's in, pleasurable. In it can be pleasurable and give you great, and it can be fun and funny and, you know, and make you feel cool. But it's, yeah, he doesn't think it provides sustenance for happiness or for community. It's a kind of relentless, I mean, it's connected for him to certain trends in postmodern uh, theory and culture of sort of relentless deconstruction 
uh, and and he feels that this yeah that this does not that it's a lot of people are in pain because of it. He thinks. Yeah. So he talks about like how irony tyrannizes us and how it gets us into a condition where it's like banal or unsophisticated to be concerned with what people really mean by what they're <laughs> yeah. saying or what's really true. Right. And, and he thinks, you know, this is related to the sense of being lost, yes. being sad, being unable to really, really feel anything. And also is kind of related to a very distorted self image. So I think he also connects it to like various forms of, of self-deception and maybe an inability to diagnose what's really wrong with us. Like, like irony prevents us from seeing what's really wrong with us. And he wants to connect it to fiction. So what's the connection between the problem of irony and, and fiction? Well, I think he thinks uh, the problem of irony was almost like uh, fiction was almost like a, uh, the laboratory in which it started to really grow. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I think he, he sees fiction as continuous with a lot of other trends in the culture. And his feeling is that serious novelists, their job really, you know, they ought to be able to see what's going on in their culture and provide some kinds of antidotes to it or, or alternatives. And instead, because fiction had embraced irony and self-reflexivity and skepticism about the things you mentioned, truth and goodness and these kind of things. And this is the, you know, this is the, the strand in Wallace that's often coded as somewhat conservative. You know, I think he, he really felt the sort of devolution from thinking about those serious things. He himself wrote an essay about Dostoevsky and talked about the kind of authority with which Dostoevsky spoke about these deep, what he called the desperate questions of existence and lamented that not only could no modern, not only was no contemporary writer doing that, but that it would have um, been, all, even he couldn't do it. You know, there was something like he worried it would, it would feel inauthentic if a writer tried to do this today, because so suspicious had we grown to, um, to these trends, to, 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 of, of, of any kind of uh, discussion of those kind of things. Um, but, and this is, you know, I, I'd be, I mean, I actually think this has changed since Wallace wrote, but I think, uh, in some ways that are good and in some ways that are not so good, but, but I think he was at that moment, historically speaking, he sort of felt this despair over that fact that he sort of felt the need for these things, but also the inability even himself to write. He worried so much about being, um, moralistic or being seen as, you know, uh, too earnest or these kind of things. Uh, yeah. even as he saw that that was a kind of, saw, I think more clearly and with more, um, urgency than almost anyone else in his generation, how debilitating, uh, those, those attitudes were, he was still caught up in them. Yeah. I think it was debilitating for him personally. For sure. I mean, I always, so, uh, how old was he when he took his own life? 42 or 44, I think maybe 44. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it really, it's difficult. I, it's actually impossible for me to keep that out of my head when I'm reading him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially when he writes about his depression and his despair, which comes up 
often enough, especially in his essays. I mean, one of the things that's really wild about his essays is that he does things with the essay that you think you're not supposed to do, but he does them beautifully. You're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And it could work. And yeah, because he has these tendencies to become very self reflective at any point, no matter what he's thinking. About. I, I always felt like there was a part of him and it's, this is why it's partly why it's so sad that he didn't live longer that just wanted to like, write like Tolstoy, you know, to like get out of his, you know, to start writing about love yeah. and death and, and, and the great, the great questions, you know, but, and, and, and you can see him starting to move in that direction a little bit toward the end of his life. There was a short story he published in the New Yorker that was part of pale King called good people where he's, there's no footnotes, there's no, he's really trying to resist that sort of recursive uh, model, the whirlpool. I always think of that image that he quotes from Descartes in the second meditation, he's stuck in a whirlpool trying to of thinking, you know, and that Wallace, I think he really wanted to get out of that whirlpool. And yet there was a part of him that remained always uh, trapped in it, uh, both tragically in a personal sense but i think one of the reasons he connected so much with so many people culturally in his at that time was there was a sense in which it felt like the whole culture was trapped in this whirlpool um, or at least like large segments of it and a lot of the kind of people that read him felt very strongly i certainly identified with it myself at that time yeah i mean i i love david foster wallace what do you i the so we're kind of running out of time unfortunately but i want to ask you about what you think his legacy is because it's been challenged. There are some movements to try to cancel him and to make him seem, you know, like, I don't, I don't really understand these movements, actually. I, I find them absurd, but I'm not the most sympathetic person <laughs> to this sort of stuff. But what do you, I mean, yeah, can we just talk about what you think his legacy is and his, you know, kind of what, what do you think is going to be the enduring value of it? Sure, yeah. I mean, there have been, Obviously, a lot of backlash against him in recent years, some of it based on some aspects of his personal behavior toward women that have come out, others based on just the idea that his writing, a lot of it sort of marshals his readers against him, uh, that there's a kind of like Wallace bro who um, who is, you know, uh, loves to talk about reading Wallace and happens to be an asshole, you know, and um, so this is, you know, there are these things out there. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't worry that much about those things for his legacy. I mean, I think that uh, great writers, um, you know, they find their audience. The only thing that makes me sad about it is if it prevents certain people from being able to have an encounter with them today, young people today, because I think there's still a lot. Um, but maybe some of those people will make them interested to go and read his books themselves. And, you know, I say, I say in the book, I, you know, I don't think these questions about Wallace's life are necessarily trivial. His, he's, his writing is so intimate and so in this therapeutic model, this idea of sort of, I think he himself raises the question of how his art relates to his life um, and to being able to live a happy life in, in this, in, you know, in this world. And, and that relates not just to how he treated women, but even much in some ways more consequentially for what he wrote mostly about his suicide. And the fact, like you said, that it's hard to read yeah. his books without thinking this person did not work out these problems for themselves in some way. And, right. um, you know, Franzen brought that up in his, uh, I think, um, unforgivable 
betrayal of Wallace in his New Yorker article. But still, he brought it up very starkly, uh, you know, this idea of sort of using the evidence of Wallace's suicide against his literature as if there might be something harmful in it. Um, And, you know, I don't think even if we wanted to, we can't totally dismiss those things. Those are part of our public record of what we know of Wallace. We bring them to our reading of him. But I just would hope that people don't keep the don't allow those things to keep them from having an encounter with his writing and seeing that his writing may also have things in it that they don't know and that surprise them and challenge them, um, you know, in this therapeutic sense I've been talking about that allow them to. you know, to think more deeply about themselves and their own lives and their own treatment of women. I mean, the irony for me is brief interviews with hideous men. I think I talk about, I have a chapter on it in the book and that, that was a, that was a book that I read when I was like 22 and it really had a deep impact on me on how I treated women and how I treated everybody. Uh, because it, it did have this therapeutic quality of trying to get you to look very clear eyed at things, at behaviors that you, uh, it was sort of, it was sort of laser tracked at the kind of uh, intellectual guy who who thinks they're very uh, advanced and self-conscious about everything and can talk you your ear off about feminist theory and yet nevertheless uh, in their interpersonal relationships is quite selfish and quite um, unfeeling toward toward women and toward toward other people so uh, you know, I just think there's so much in his writing for people and, and, and that, that book may not be for everyone there, you know, but, but I think there are a lot of people it is, it is for, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope that the, like, that these thought, uh, room, the things floating around don't at least keep people from encountering his work, but I don't think in the long run they will. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. So for our listeners who maybe haven't read any David Foster Wallace, where do you think they should start? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I still think, so, I mean, Infinite Jest is really his masterpiece. I think it's the only, like, truly full novel he ever wrote. Uh, and, you know, I still think that's the one to build up to ultimately. But it is 900 pages, and I understand. It is very um, Yeah, and not always easy reading, although easier than some of the other big postmodern novels. But, um there was recently like a kind of Gaddis revival that made me remember like Wallace actually was quite smooth reading compared to a lot of that. Very entertaining. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I think uh, girl with curious here, I tend to move people toward the fiction. Cause I, although I love the essays, I also think there are things that happen in the fiction that, that, that are so unusual and important that you don't get from the essays. So Girl with Curious Hair is an early book of short stories that I think many of which still really hold up and are very accessible. The fantastic story it starts with, with uh, three contestants on the set of Jeopardy, um, also brings back that early 90s, uh, late 80s milieu. But um, I think that's a book that you get a lot of the themes of his work through without quite so much commitment. And I also do just think brief interviews really is uh, a kind of a kind of minor masterpiece, uh, and it's also quite short. Um, uh, so that's another one I would encourage people to give a chance. Um, it doesn't take a huge commitment. Okay, excellent. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me, John. You have been listening.
listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy and theology podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or on the app Lyceum, and you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Pod, and we're also over on Facebook at Sacred and Profane Love. If you enjoy this podcast, leave us a positive review on iTunes, and also please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly patron. As always, I'd like to thank our most recent patrons for their generous support. My deepest gratitude goes to Peter Lagovich, Thomas Powell, Michael Stewart, Charles Odegaard, Samantha Schroeder, Tommy Collison, Jessica Gottlieb, Jonathan Mueller, and David Manuel. For our next episode, I'll have Matthew Rothis Moser back on the podcast to continue our series on Dante's Divine Comedy. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Thank you.